Hi guys, uh, hope you enjoyed your afternoon, as, uh, as Steve uh, also uh, asked. I'm, I'm still Matt, uh, same as I was earlier on today when I introduced myself. <laughs> so, uh, one of the alive and dangerous uh, team here. So, you'll learn plenty more about me this weekend, but just in overview, I'm, a, an, I'm an adopted Yorkshireman. Um, I've now lived in, uh, in Yorkshire for about 20 years with my wife Jen and my two kids, Maya and Jacob. I think they will have spent this morning both playing football for their respective football teams, which they're currently passionate about, and then probably uh, uh, squabbling over Xbox and iPad time this afternoon. They certainly, anyone who was on the football court this afternoon will have realised they don't take their football from me because it's not really my game. Anyway, I want to talk to you this evening about freedom. Okay, freedom is perhaps the primary uh, pursuit of this generation. The postmodern dream is taking Wilberforce's principles of freedom from slavery and then applying them to every area of our life, to our oppression, to prejudice, or even opposing views in our lives. We saw this clip, which I think is a fantastic clip, um, in the introduction. It's of the film 127 Hours. If you're not familiar with it, it's the true story of um, Aaron Ralston and the defining 127 hours of his life. We'll come and, uh, and explore a little bit more those 127 hours later in the, in the talk. But you can see from the initial clip that Aaron appears to have freedom mastered. Yeah, he's free to go wherever he wants, to do whatever he wants, and enjoy all the excitement along the way. Free from any commitment or any obligation, he's purely living that postmodern freedom dream. But freedom's also a truly biblical uh, uh, principle and entirely in alignment with Jesus' message and character. We heard the verse, I think, from Steve earlier from Galatians. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. So the question I want to ask this evening is, is this postmodern promise um, of, I can do whatever I like so long as I don't hurt anybody, is that the freedom that Jesus has come to bring to us, to bring to the world? So we're going to explore a bit more that, me- that postmodern message of freedom. We're going to have a look at what Jesus has to say about freedom in his character and his life. And we're also going to try and understand a little bit what um, Aaron Ralston might have to say to us about freedom as well. So I believe freedom as a concept is more important to society now than it was ever before. In fact, I think when we are measuring society's progress, freedom is probably the primary metric we use to distinguish between a progressive and, uh, and a, a, kind of a regressive society, a, a, an advanced or a primitive society. I think more than technology or wealth, the two mega-gods of our generation, freedom actually ranks even higher. So if you think about the least progressive societies, maybe countries like Iran, North Korea, or even maybe China come to mind. And we're probably judging them not on their wealth or their technology, but on their approach to freedom. Freedom is seen as our primary moral right, the preeminent postmodern value. Aaron Ehrenholtz, uh, from his research on the subject, links freedom directly to happiness. In talking about freedom, he says, society believes that choice is a good thing, and the more we have, the happier we are. The more we have, the happier we are. So where has society's current worship of freedom come from? In many ways, it's a very positive move. 
I live in Hull in Yorkshire, which is the home of William Wilberforce, who's uh, perhaps the historical poster boy for the freedom movement and undoubtedly an amazing positive uh, force for modern society. But probably politically, things started to move in the freedom direction about 200 years before Wilberforce. In the 16th century, European governments were starting to get tired of centuries of religious wars and started to move towards a government style and societal order which was based upon consent to be governed. This then kind of granted individuals the freedom to live in ways that satisfied their own interest and stopped the persecution of people based upon the different religious uh, view of, um, from the king at the time. Then in the mid-20th century, Western society made another giant shift towards freedom values. The rise of the extremes of both Germany, uh, sorry, fascism in Germany and communism in Russia brought with them unprecedented levels of oppression across Europe. And the defeat of those two powers was seen as a victory of freedom over oppression. And we are um, wearing poppies um, uh, at the moment uh, this weekend to celebrate the freedom we have because of those who died uh, to give us freedom. Postmodernism therefore judged society by its ability to be able to generate freedom. But there seemed to be another significant shift in this mindset in the late 20th century. The concept of freedom moved from liberation from extremism and became freedom that, from anything that imposes an absolute moral position. So postmodernism said that nothing should have any claim on us. We should be able to live as we sit fit, see fit, to only our own self-assessed set of values. There's no natural, inherent moral right or wrong. Freedom is able to do whatever I want, so long as I don't hurt anyone. Freedom has therefore become synonymous with personal independence, the ability to make our own decisions, choose our own path, do whatever we want, whenever we want. What of Jesus' view on freedom? The quest for freedom is a theme that uh, is found throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. Just three chapters into the uh, story of God's creation, humanity gave up its freedom by choosing to rebel against God. And from that time forward, the perfect freedom God created in the Garden of Eden was gone. The long-term effects of this were both physical and spiritual. The Old Testament records how God's people lost their physical freedom time and again as various empires took over them. That loss of physical freedom was often tied to spiritual disobedience, like worshipping false gods. But time and time again, God forgave his people and, uh, and rescued them. And when God freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he was foreshadowing the arrival of Jesus Christ, who we've come to talk about this weekend, who came to bring humanity, that ultimate freedom that was lost in the Garden of Eden. So this weekend, though, we're looking specifically at the character of Jesus. So what's Jesus' specific position on freedom? How did he approach freedom in his ministry and his work? When Jesus uh, began his relatively short period of ministry on earth, he started by announcing he was the one that God's people had been waiting for since the fall of humanity. And he did this by reading a passage. 
from the book of Isaiah, a passage his listeners knew was referring to the Messiah or the Saviour of the world. In Luke 4.16, he said, it says, He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up and read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. These words had been written hundreds of years earlier and spoke of a new freedom that was coming. When Jesus stood up and read, which was the first thing he said in his ministry, he was saying, the future has arrived. Freedom would come through him. So I want to look at Jesus' personal approach to freedom through his ministry, trying to understand something a bit more about his personal character in it. And one thing is for certain, that hanging around with Jesus would have been an exciting and a very challenging place to be. Just as Aaron Ralston approached his journey to Blue John Canyon with a wild and uninhibited attitude, I think Jesus appeared similarly unconstrained in his approach to his ministry in Israel. And I want to look at Jesus' freedom in three areas. In his freedom from culture, his freedom from power, and also his freedom even from the laws of nature. So starting with freedom from culture. In the way he went about his life, Jesus demonstrated he was free from the constraints of local culture and practice. He was entirely countercultural. Let's look at a couple of examples of how he rode against the customs and culture of the time. In Mark 5, we uh, read the story of Jesus casting out a demon called Legion from a man into 2,000 pigs, who then ran off a hill and drowned themselves. Now, this would have been quite an exciting story on its own, before you kind of consider some of the cultural context about what was happening in that story. So first, that story actually took part in a, in a place, um, a land of the Gerasenes, and this was a Gentile region, hence the pigs were there, because they wouldn't have been in the, in the Jewish area of Israel. And Jesus, as a Jew, therefore, shouldn't have been in that place. And then specifically, the man who uh, he cast the demon out of was located in a graveyard, another place which was specifically prohibited for Jesus to be, because he would be unclean. And then Jesus ran straight in and faced a man who everybody else feared so much because he'd broken chains apart with his own uh, kind of uh, force and he'd even broken the shackles off of his feet. And yet Jesus ran straight to him and was able to face him and be totally present with him and deal with, with the situation and his pain. And then a short time later, we see a uh, appearingly contrasting um, story. In Luke 10, we read a much calmer but still con culturally controversial situation. Jesus was visiting the home of Mary and Martha. And we find Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. It sounds a beautiful and very relaxed uh, description, but... The seemingly innocent feet, phrase, sitting at Jesus' feet, wasn't just a description of where 
uh, Mary was sitting. It was a phrase used to describe um, a rabbi teaching his disciples. So Jesus was actually teaching school. In this context, Jesus sat at Jesus' feet would have been a radical cultural exception, completely unheard of for a lady to be uh, being taught by a rabbi. A woman would not normally have been sat in the same room as a man in, inside a house, but let alone been included to be taught by a rabbi. In both these situations, Jesus found himself completely free of the cultural context in order that he could show his love and his compassion for the person. They both give a fascinating insight into how Jesus would have been both completely compelling, yet frighteningly countercultural to be around. My rule-abiding, person-fearing character would have had me turning inside out if I was present in both of these situations. Jesus was also free from power, or at least the traditional um, forms and, and ways of achieving power. Free from the conventional ways of ruling, the conventional ways of gaining power and influence. One of the worst, first statements Jesus made was in his sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus first kind of made this statement, it would have raised some eyebrows and puzzled many people. Jesus was saying, you need to be poor to have the riches of God's kingdom. This challenges every normal way that we look at life. In our culture, we expect the rich to inherit everything, the hardworking to gain all the wealth that they can get. When Jesus announced himself as saviour, the Jews were expecting an army to be raised to overthrow the Romans, but he didn't go with force. He went with peace. He didn't even go to overthrow the current ruling powers. He created a new way. He created a new kingdom. And this new kingdom was going to turn all the conventional ways of power and rule upside down. In Matthew 20, towards the end of Jesus' ministry, we find a situation where the disciples are all arguing and positioning themselves for power and influence within Jesus' new kingdom. They were all wanting to sit at his right hand. And in Matthew, we hear Jesus calling them together, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was completely free from the natural order of power and authority, and he created his new kingdom with a very different order and very different rules. And just finally, Jesus was also free even from the laws of nature. We saw that he walked on water. He calmed rough seas. He raised the dead to life, as we heard earlier. He filled nets with fish when there were no fish to be found. He lived a life which was free from the scientific principles that constrain the rest of humanity. But this freedom that Jesus had did not come for free. It wasn't a freedom that he was entitled to because he was God, because he also chose to be fully man, as Rich talked about earlier. It was a freedom he gained because he chose to be surrendered. 
He chose to be surrendered to the will of his Father. John, we read, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. And this choice for Jesus, obviously, was not without consequence, and he understood that fully. Another situation also referred to by Rich earlier, at the end of his um, life heading into his death, we read in Matthew, going a little ahead, he fell on his face, praying, my father is, if there is any way, get me out of this, but please, not what I want, you, do what you want. Jesus was able to exercise freedom in some areas, areas because he chose to limit his freedom in others. Freedom is a choice. It's a decision of one thing over another, not an ability to do whatever you want. Jesus was not setting us free to do whatever we wanted. He was freeing us to do what we ought to do. He was liberating us to walk in relationship with God and be the kind of people that we are created to be. This spiritual freedom is the ability to obey God and choose his will for our lives. It's a freedom for our souls much more than for our circumstances. So let's briefly return to Aaron uh, Ralston. We saw in the introduction that he was the epitome of freedom, living the dream, going where he wanted, doing whatever he wanted. But for those of you not already familiar, let's see what happened next. If you watch the film 127 Hours, you can see all that played out in gratuitous uh, detail, but I decided to save you from it and actually show Aaron tell his own story. Aaron found himself in a place where his future freedom required a choice. He could regain his freedom, but he had to lose his arm. It was a drastic choice, stark, horrible, ultimately simple, but in no way easy. Aaron could have freedom, but it was going to come at a cost. The postmodern view of freedom is you can have whatever you want so long as you don't hurt anybody, but this notion is fundamentally flawed. Freedom, as we see from Jesus, ultimately always is a choice between one thing or another. I can't choose to eat whatever I want and also live a long and healthy life. The freedom from my food choices affects the subsequent uh, consequences in my health choices. I can't choose to be fully dedicated to my work and be focused on building my wealth and career and also be fully present with my family. Those two things are mutually uh, not compatible, as I think I've found over the last few years. Freedom is always a choice of one thing over another. I can't have whatever I want without consequence. So... I know it's late in the evening, and I know you've had a big dinner, but um, bear with me for a second. We're just going to talk philosophy for a few minutes. Um, the Princeton philosopher Harry Frankfurt describes uh, these terms. He talks about the concepts of first-order desires and second-order desires. First-order desires are what I guess the Bible would call, uh, describe as the desires of the flesh. My desire for binging on chocolates and crisps when I'm tired and hungry is definitely a first-order desire. Whereas the second order desires want something better. 
for yourself. My second order desire is to eat something healthier, which is going to make me feel good after it, and it's going to kind of uh, enable some of the health choices I want to make for myself. And then he has a third concept. He's got the first order desires, second order desires, and he said there's a third concept called second order volition. And second order volition is my ability to be able to override my first order desires with my second order desires. And then Frankfurt goes on to describe freedom in these terms. The statement that a person enjoys freedom of will... Sorry, I'll start again. The statement that a person enjoys freedom of the will means that he is free to want what he wants to want. More precisely, it is that he is free to will what he wants to will. It is in securing his will to his second-order volitions that a person exercises freedom of the will. So as we look at freedom in these terms, freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want. True freedom is the ability to be able to exercise your will, to override your first order desires with your second order desires, those things that are more positive for your life. To do, or to put it in biblical terms, to choose the desires of the spirit over the desires of the flesh. So this philosophy actually aligns with the practice of Jesus. Jesus cho- made choices to limit his freedom in some things that, in order that he would have full freedom in other things. By surrendering him, his, himself and his will fully to his father, he gained the freedom of the power of his father. And this full freedom is also available to us. Jesus' freedom is spiritual. He's more interested in setting your soul free than changing your circumstances. Freedom is not a lack of restraint that allows us to fulfill any selfish desire. As we abide in Jesus, we're released from those constraints of the world and released to be all that God has created us to be. So, how do we gain our freedom If we're following in the footsteps and the character of Jesus, he surrendered himself to his father in order to gain his freedom. So what does that attitude of surrender actually look like in our lives? Let's read from John 8. John 8, 31, it says, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Jesus identifies a process for experiencing true freedom with the words, if, then. This process shouldn't be confused with a legalistic or even a religious formula, as Rich was talking a little about that earlier. He doesn't say, if you have a daily quiet time and tithe tithe properly, then you can be free. And while Jesus does not prescribe formula, his words do reveal a way of which things operate within his kingdom. For example, you are free to watch the sunrise each morning, but you must do two things in order to see it. You must get up before the sunrise and you must look east. If you get up uh, after the sunrise, or if you look west, you're not going to see it. Why? Because that's, that's just the way things work. This little word if is a 
big concept in the kingdom of God. The word does not represent a religious rule. It represents an invitation. True freedom won't attack you. Rather, it asks you to respond to God's invitation to accept his complete freedom. So the verse I read in John talks about continuing in my word and truly being my disciples. What does it actually mean to continue in my word and truly be my disciples? So it came as a bit of a revelation to me earlier on this year year, that um, biblically we're not called to be Christians, but we're called to be disciples. In fact, the the Bible only uses the word Christian about three times and the word disciple over 300 times. The word um, we use as disciple um, is actually in the Hebrew, uh, the word Talmud, which is perhaps more fully translated as apprentice, a person who remains with and in so doing becomes like and therefore does the things of his master. If you look at following Jesus in this perspective, statistically over 75% of the Western world would identify with being a Christian. But less than 10% would identify as one who truly follows Jesus. Despite, this is what Jesus asking us to do. He asks us to be with him, to become like him and to do the things he does. And once we accept that invitation to truly follow Jesus and not simply acknowledge his existence, we become his Talmud, his disciple or his apprentice. This is our position of surrender. I'm grateful to kind of John Mark Comer for bringing some of this to life to me, and you can head in his direction if you want a more complete view. But in brief summary, what in the eyes of Jesus does becoming a Talmud mean? So as Jesus was gathering his disciples, they would have already had quite a clear idea because the position of a disciple or a Talmud was a, to a rabbi was a, a very common and established one in Greco-Roman society. And a Jewish Talmud had broadly three phases to, uh, to his apprenticeship. Firstly, you just spent time with your rabbi, following him for the whole day in whatever he was doing and literally being covered in the dust from his sandals. It was a time of observing him, beginning to understand the ways of your rabbi. Then the second phase was beginning to become like him, starting to become like him. You'd start to copy the things he did and act in the ways that he did. Very different to uh, today's society, which is all about being different and individual and personal. Uh, the, uh, the apprenticeship of a Talmud to a rabbi was all about just matching and being identical in every single way to that of the rabbi that you were serving under. And then the, fir- the, fir- the third phase would be to do the things that he did, to actually practice the ways of a rabbi and doing what he is doing. And we can observe these exact same three phases in the the lives of the 12 disciples. Firstly, they were gathered and they just followed Jesus. They completely left what they were doing and followed him around everywhere for the full 24 hours a day. Just spending time with him, watching him all day, every day, observing what he did. And then over time, they started to become like Jesus. They copied his habits, they copied his ways of living and his ways of thinking. 
And then finally, just when Jesus thought they were ready, he sent them out and they did the things that Jesus did. Dallas Willard said this, and I can't believe that I'm getting the first Dallas Willard quote in of the weekend. Rich normally steals this one off me. but uh, He said, the greatest issue facing the world today, with all of its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who, by professional culture, are identified as Christians, will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ. Steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of heavens into every corner of human existence. The greatest issue facing the world today is whether Christians will take that step to become disciples. And this is the heart of surrender. The sacrifice that we need to make to enable to us to inhabit the freedom that Jesus had. <coughs> That transition from Christian to Talmud, nominal Christian to Talmud, is an almighty leap. And that's why Willard describes it as the greatest challenge facing the world today. And Jesus even describes part of that process can be similar to the decision that Aaron had to make. It says in Matthew 5 on his Sermon on the Mount, If your right eye causes you to sin, take it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And throw it away, because it's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. We have a very serious if-then invitation from Jesus to inhabit the freedom that he demonstrated and freely gives. If we become a true disciple, then we will become truly free. So this is a journey that I've been challenging myself to rethink this year, really asking myself those questions. Am I demonstrating the characteristics of a disciple of Jesus? So firstly, the first question I ask myself is, am I spending time with him? That's the first phase of becoming a disciple. Am I spending time with him? Enough time to be able to be kind of covered with the dirt from his sandals. And the answer I had to face with myself is no. I think I treat Jesus sometimes like a shop. I just go to him when I need something. And not a friend walking alongside me daily throughout the day. I came to a realisation that I, just, I need to engage him more readily in my life, in all the things that are going on around me. I need to spend more time praying and talking to him throughout the day. Engaging him in my decisions. Just asking myself regularly the question, what does Jesus want me to do? Being with Jesus is about a full-time position. It's not about going to him when you need something. In order to be a disciple, I need to spend more time with Jesus. I had to ask myself the question, am I becoming like Jesus? So becoming like Jesus is about living my life in those patterns and practices of Jesus. And again, the answer was no, I'm not doing enough. I'm not spending enough time praying like Jesus did. I'm not spending enough time in silence and solitude like I saw Jesus doing. I didn't spend, I'm not spending enough time reading my Bible or even spending enough time in communion, communion with groups of Christian friends. I need to do something different about the habits and practices in my life if I want to be seen uh, and if I want to become a true disciple of Jesus. So um, 
this is a bit of a journey I've been going on with my wife at the same time. We've been discussing the same thing. And one thing we decided to do in the last few months was actually to institute a Sabbath back into our, our week. We just found that our lives were way too busy and full of hurry, and we just needed to do something different. So we decided to take a day each week uh, just to be away from our phones. We put our phones down, away from our jobs and our house chores, and just be present with God and be present with each other. We decided that actually what works for us best is to make that from Friday evening through to to Saturday um, evening. We find actually Sundays are just way too busy a day naturally to make it work. So we chose a different different time. And it's definitely a work in progress. I think this is something that we're going to have to work out for many years. But already, just in a few months of trying to do it, we can really see an impact that it's having kind of on our lives in slowing the pace and um, allowing us to focus on him. And also just on the lives of our family, being able to spend more good quality time together. So I ask myself, am I becoming like Jesus? The answer is no, but I need to do better. And then finally, the final question I need to ask myself is that the disciples do the things he does. Am I doing the things he does? We can see from the stories we read just today that Jesus was brave. He was totally present and fully interruptible. And these, I don't think, are characteristics that define me. And I can't just make myself be better at some of these, but I think... The more that um, I spend time with him, the more that I behave and take those patterns on in the way that he did, the more I invite him continuously into my life, the more these characteristics will come, the more I will do the things that he did. So as we close and go into a ministry of silence, I just want to challenge you to ask yourselves those same questions. Do I want those? Do I want that freedom that Jesus gives? Do I want to have access to that power and freedom that he he has? And am I prepared to submit myself to be his apprentice?